Our Father, we know you have a word for us today. We know that your desire is to strengthen us with trust in you. We might have faith that we might know who you are. So I pray, Father, that you would cause our hearts and our minds to be open and inclined to respond to what you have for us. Would you take your word and cause it to instill in us strength and resolve and faith in the face of adversity and difficulties, oh God, as you have demonstrated through the centuries in the hearts and minds of those faithful to you. And even when we are faithless, oh God, you are faithful. And so we thank you and praise you. We lift up your name. We ask that you would be exalted and praised in this place, in our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, Pastor Duane was quite correct this morning when he exhorted the congregation and said, hey, isn't it great what God is doing in our lives? And perhaps you came in this morning here and the praise has lifted you a little bit here or here. And that's exactly right. That's what it means to come and gather with God's people. But it's highly possible that there are a number of people who have gathered with us this morning that really don't feel victorious in Jesus, really don't feel like like conquerors, really don't feel like that uh, victory is in the uh, close horizon. It looks and it feels like defeat. It feels like we are victims or victimized, and it feels like it's a prolonged amount of time, and the darkness of our soul just won't go away. And so while we, while we may have gained a momentary reprieve by being here this morning with each other and in the presence of God and in the praise songs, it will go away when we leave that feeling, that sense of victory. So are we victims? Are you um, destined to be defeated for your life? There are clearly many situations in the scriptures that are different historically, but so similar emotionally to how we might feel. It was a regular occurrence that God's people ended up somehow in exile or ended up in a situation that looked like defeat. It looked like and felt like anything but victory. Where is this power that God promises? Where is the victory that we all long for? Wouldn't we love to be able to sing victory in Jesus every day and not only sing it, but feel it, and it look like that? But regularly, it's not the case. And regularly, it's because we are victims, and I'd put that with whatever that signature is, quotations, of circumstances that are as a result of the sinfulness of people around us or maybe ourselves. 
We live in a broken world. We live in a broken culture. We live in a broken city. I live and you live in a broken body. Consequently, there are times when we find ourselves in exile or feeling like we're in exile. That's the situation that Daniel and the people of God found, their, found themselves in, in our text today. Would you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1? We want to look at chapter 1 and 2. You, you saw a little glimpse of, um, of both chapters 1 and 2 in that vignette that we looked at this morning. The people of God had been grossly unfaithful to God. And the leadership of Israel had placed all of the people of God in great jeopardy because of their unfaithfulness and sinfulness. And as a result, we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 1 with a description of what's happening. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And Babylon would be the uh, modern-day Iraq and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. I underlined that in my Bible. Because regardless of what circumstances you find yourself in, and how dark it might feel and look, and how hopeless you might think it is, whatever situation you're in, it is the sovereign God who is in control. And so um, this morning, when victory looks and feels like defeat, I want to share with you that it will be okay. And I want to share five reasons today from this section of Scripture why it will be okay. When it feels and it looks like defeat and you feel like a victim, but you belong to the Lord, it will be okay. And I want to tell you why. And the first is this. Present appearances do not eliminate future hope, ever. God is the one who delivered the people. This was not some great strong move by Babylon and some shrewd, wise conquest by, by Nebuchadnezzar. This was an act of God to discipline his people, to allow them to go into exile, and for other reasons, as we're going to discover. And regardless of how many times this happens, and we see it happen or we read it happen in the scriptures, it's hard to remember that impending defeat is always part of God's victory plan for us. If you look carefully enough, in any of these stories in the scriptures, there's always evidence that God is at work. And regardless of your situation and how dark it might feel or look or how prolonged it's been, if you pay attention, there will constantly be situations, evidence that God is at work, just reminding you. We see them over and over again in the first chapter of Daniel. Although these people were hauled into exile, and we find out that the uh, young men from the royal court were, in verse 4, were taken uh, into the king's palace, and they were taught in the culture, the literature, the language of the Babylonians, and uh, it was imposed upon them that they would be part of the diet of the Babylonians and all of that kind of thing. We find here that Daniel and some friends resolved not to defile themselves, not to allow themselves to be swept into the culture of the godless people they were around. 
And it says in verse 9, God caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. God was at work. God, the evidence of God is continual here. As you continue to read on, you'll find out that that they were healthier by, by making the choice to serve God under the great pressure. Verse 15, they looked healthier. They were better nourished. Um, and, and, and Daniel, we find in verse 17, can understand visions and dreams of all kinds. When they're interviewed by the king in verse 20, he finds them to be 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. So there's constantly evidence that God is at work if you look for it, if you pay attention. So although it may look bleak, God's victories regularly look and feel that way for, at first. And being highly favored by God never gives us a free pass from risk, hardship, exile, endangered life. There's testimony after testimony in the room of such things. You are not forgotten. You are not forsaken. You are not abandoned, although it looks and feels like it. In fact, um, it's an interesting point that's made here is that Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. It just so happens. And when it came time to give interpretations of those dreams and visions, Daniel was overlooked by the king. In fact, you know, although he had interviewed him and found him to be ten times wiser. So although you may have to endure the frustrations of feeling ignored and forgotten by people, God never forgets who you are or what he has purposed for you. Not ever. Because what's really, really fascinating about this whole situation, which you may have just sort of glossed over as you read, is, is to realize that, that God always has things going on in the background, just outside of your sight lines. It sort of slipped in here uh, as almost a side thought. Oh, by the way, Daniel has the ability by God to understand and interpret dreams and visions. Uh, the vignette said he was a visionary. I don't define those two things the same. Interpreting visions and dreams is not really visionary. But to interpret is an amazing thing. And, and then as we read on, we find out that the, the king, the, the one who's placed them all in exile, just happens to be a guy who dreams. Imagine that. What a coincidence. There happens to be a guy placed with the gift from God to interpret and a king who has dreams. Isn't life coincidental? Hardly. And so you find yourselves realizing that God's people are never at the mercy of hopeless circumstances. We're never under under the circumstances. We are always in the purposes of God. Regardless of how bleak they look. Now keep in mind, in this particular situation, they were in exile because of their sinfulness and faithlessness toward God, at least the leadership. But Daniel, Meshach, Shedrach, Abednego, 
were not there because of their sinfulness and faithlessness. They happened to be collateral damage of being in the community of sinfulness and faithlessness and leaders who led badly. Sometimes that's where you find yourself. In the situation, not because of your own making, but because of the sinfulness of people close to you. And Nebuchadnezzar was simply the instrument of discipline, but never was he in charge of God's purposes. Now, the second reason that it's going to be okay is found in the next section of Scripture we're going to look at from chapter 2 on sinful showdowns and chance circumstances are occasions God uses to reveal more of his glory. You know, as you make your way down through chapter 2, you realize that what happened is Nebuchadnezzar had a dream one night and it troubled him greatly as you read through chapter 2. And he has this great collection in his his, uh, in his court of magicians and sorcerers and wise men and, and interpreters and all kinds of them. But he, but he gets it in his mind that the majority, or if not all of them, are lame. That, that, that somehow he's surrounded by, by yes men and people who will say anything that he wants to hear. And so he decides, he comes up with an idea. He has this wild dream, and he comes before them with a test and says, all right, I want you to interpret the dream I had last night. And they're all around, okay, fine, we, that's our business, that's what we do. Come on, tell us, what, tell us your dream, and we'll interpret it for you. No, no, he says, I'm not, I'm not telling you my dream this time. Because you're just making stuff up. So he says to them, unless you can tell me what I dreamed... I'm not going to believe that you can actually interpret my dreams. And as you're reading the text, you realize that, that the, the lameness and uselessness of these sorcerers and magicians comes to the forefront because they say to him, no man can do such a thing. What you've asked of us is impossible. No human can do this. Only the gods could do this, and they don't live among men. Now, if you're paying any attention to this, you realize that, that this is an amazing setup for God to display and demonstrate his awesome glory, his uniqueness, even in the midst of the faithlessness of his people. And so um, Daniel does what any good Baptist guy would do. He declares a prayer meeting. That's what it says in the text. He goes back to the guys and he says, um, in verse 17, he returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And you're saying, I thought you said they were Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Yes, I did say that. That was their Babylonian names, but their Hebrew names are listed right here for you. And he says to them this in verse 18. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. That's what prayer really is. Prayer is really pleading to God for mercy. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And they call out to God in heaven. And the challenge is put forth for God to reveal his glory. And so it says in the text that they prayed. And that night, they prayed to the prayer answering God. And that night, it says in the text, he caused Daniel to have a vision of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And not only that, but to understand what the dream meant. So Daniel wakes up in the morning. Have you ever done this? God's just come through. He's just done something amazing. And it says that Daniel woke up in the morning and praised the God of heaven. And then he just starts extolling the greatness of God. And and this is the point of God placing us in situations uh, to demonstrate his glory to us. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. He says, wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows that what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king and so he praises God and he, he, he reminds us of the greatness of God in the midst of this really dark time this difficult exile and as you read through the scriptures regularly God's people in the heels of something that God has done great in prayer give him this great praise and doxology and, and adoration and so then Daniel goes to the king Prayer to a prayer-answering God brings about praise and new awareness of God's revealed character. His glory is put on display in which we are called as God's people to be witnesses. That's who we are. We are witnesses to the excellence of God as Daniel lays it out here for us. That's who we are. That's what we say. That's what we do as God brings us out of these situations or gives us answer or demonstrates to us that he cares for us or gives us glimpses that he's there and hasn't forgotten about us. We're witnesses to his glory and his greatness to all around us. And so then Daniel, it says, goes to the king. And the king asked Daniel, verse 26, also called Belteshazzar, they had changed his name, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replies, no wise man, enchanter, musician, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these, and he proceeds to tell him, Now, I want you to notice here that victory is granted here to Daniel right now in this great answer to prayer, but not for personal praise, but that he might extol the greatness of God, that the world might know there is a great God in heaven who presides over the affairs of men. Regularly, we are placed in a situation of desperation. That God might reveal his power in our lives. That we might be witnesses to others of the greatness of God. And I want you to notice how important it is what 
Daniel said when he said, No wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. No wise man, not even me. But God can. And this offering of praise, giving glory to God for anything that he does in your life is strategically missional and must be the way we operate. Because we want to say to everybody out there, it's not me, it's God. And the God that enables me can enable you. We don't want people to think, well, you're just disciplined. You, you go to church all the time. You read your Bible. You're special. You, you know, I could never be that. God could never do that in my life. No, no. We want them to know that it is not me. I'm nothing special. You're nothing special. It's not about us. It's about God. And the God who can change me, the God who can transform me, the God who can give me victory, the God who can give me insight, the God who enables me can enable you if you'll respond to him that's the power of the gospel that's the power of our message that's our witness that's our testimony that was Daniel's testimony I didn't do this King Nebuchadnezzar I did not do this but God in heaven can read your mind And so, um, the revealer of mysteries, he says, has showed you what is going to happen. And this is the third reason why it may feel and look like defeat, but it will be okay, is because God has planned and purposed all of history. We are not the random circumstances of life ever. God has shown Nebuchadnezzar here, as Daniel points out, the, the great epics of history. What God, what, what of the gods, what of the magicians, what of the sorcerers could do such a thing as to, to demonstrate this? In fact, it's interesting, the prophet Isaiah picks up on this as God uses prophecy as one of the things to authenticate the difference between the real God and those who claim to be gods as idols. Uh, let me pick it up for you in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 41. It's worth hearing what the what, uh, prophet has said here, how God has spoken. God states this through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 41, verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless he who chooses you is detestable. God sets up in this challenge here to declare and to hold himself out by the, by the uh, virtue of his prophetic ability to declare himself the God of gods. Why? Why can God prophesy? Because he has laid it all out already. This is no secret. 
No mystery to God. The way the world unfolds, the way your life is unfolding, the way tomorrow will be is no mystery to God. He's purposed all of history. And God himself challenges all wannabe gods to demonstrate their legitimacy by being able to prophesy. And when they can't, the case is made. He gives, he reveals, he knows. He is the king of all kingdoms. He has the times and the seasons in his hands. And what went through Nebuchadnezzar's mind was a full sweep of human history. And Daniel's articulated it for him, say, what you saw is a great statue of a man. And at the top of that statue, was there, there was a head of gold. And that represents you, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, the great culture of Babylon, a head of gold. But after you will come a, another kingdom, and that kingdom represented by the chest and the arms of silver and we know that the next kingdom that would come would be the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians under the leadership of Darius and Cyrus and following that kingdom there he says there, there, there's a there's going to be another kingdom that is represented as the torso and and thighs of bronze and we know that the the great kingdom of Greece followed that under the leadership of Alexander the Great and the conquest of uh, uh, all all throughout the world And following that, he says, there will be feet of iron and a mixture of clay. Another kingdom, the kingdom of Rome that would would be um, uh, fierce and and would uh, destroy and, and would be powerful under the Caesars which would be a mixture with clay and the feet, it wouldn't stand. And then he says, and, and there's another image of, of a rock coming out of a mountain, but not cut out of the mountain by human hands. And this rock will fill all of the world. And it will crush the feet of clay and iron, and the statue will come down, and all those kingdoms will be destroyed. He gives them an amazing sweep of human history. So amazing that skeptical biblical archaeologists are convinced that this had to be written at a later date after all of these kingdoms came to be. But such is not the case. It's interesting that God slips just a little thing in here. In in chapter 2, verse 4, anticipating, of course, as the God of all the ages, anticipating, of course, perhaps the skeptics of the future. And he gives us this tiny little detail in, in, in chapter 2, verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. And it's interesting that in the original, the, the book of Daniel, from chapter 2, verse 4, right through to chapter 7, verse 28, is recorded in Aramaic, not Hebrew, which is completely unusual. It was written actually in the language of the Babylonians. There's a number, a variety of, of, of purposes to that, but one of the great purposes is that if it were written at a later date, it would have never been written in Aramaic. If it had been written in, uh, in, in 100 uh, BC or one, 150 BC or 160 BC, thereabouts, after these kingdoms had all lined up, which was a time of... of, of, of national uprising in Israel, they would have written it in Hebrew. 
It would have never been written in Aramaic. And so I think this is a fascinating little thing that God just slips in here because it doesn't certainly matter to us, really. When you were reading that, you probably never even paid any attention to that. It wasn't one of those landmark things like, wow, it was written in Aramaic. Like, you're looking at me now like, wow, I can't wait to go home and tell my neighbor that that section was written in Aramaic. That's the most enlightening thing I've ever heard in my life. It's really not that, is it? It's like, oh, okay, great. But it's a big deal. Because God is in charge of all of history. And it's also interesting that as... as um, James Montgomery Boyce points out that each of these kingdoms in succession becomes less elaborate and grand. You have Babylon as represented as gold. And then the next, uh, uh, the next uh, um, conquering country that comes in is represented as silver. And then the fo following that is bronze. Nobody wants the bronze. That's third place. And after that is iron. And so you have this, this grand, grand na nation in gold, and then the next is silver, and it's a de de declining in extravagance, but increasing in strength. Silver is stronger than gold. Bronze is stronger than silver. Iron is stronger than bronze. And so you see this concept of man-made, um, a man-made vision of, of, of strength and raw power giving way, to, giving way to the extravagance and the aesthetic. And then there's the description of the rock that will fill the whole universe and take out all of these nations. Because things by, made by man will fail, but what God makes will endure forever. And there's this great image of the rock as the imagery and metaphor of the final glorious kingdom, not made by human hands. Everywhere in the scripture, when we hear and we think about rock, it's a metaphor for God. God is the rock of ages. And, and there's this amazing picture that is referred to in this idea of the rock. Jesus uses the teaching of the rock regularly and, and the New Testament writers zero in a rock and the, and the psalmist writes in Psalm 118, 22 in, in the context of that favorite verse of us, uh, of most of us, this is the day the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it and most of us uh, have heard where people have come in and started off church services and, and glorious gatherings and said, this is the day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it of course yanked totally out of context because while it is a glorious day and we will rejoice in it it's reference to Calvary and our salvation and a very very hard day sorrowful day painful day for our Lord but in that text it talks about the rock that the the builders rejected has become the capstone and it's just sort of slid into the psalm there. Now, it just so happens that while the temple of Solomon was being built in Jerusalem, the, the rocks were quarried elsewhere by dimension, exact dimension that they were to be, and then they were hauled back to Jerusalem and, and put in place. 
And, and as these rocks would come, they would put them in place, they would all fit, and there was this rock that was sent, and it didn't fit, it didn't fit anywhere. And, and the builders set it aside, they rejected it, and then they continued to build the temple. And when all of the pieces came together as God had instructed, there was this need of one more rock called the capstone that would hold the temple all together. The rock that the builders had rejected has become the capstone. And so the New Testament writers pick up on this, and Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 2, 6 through 8, and says, this is a reference to Christ Jesus. While all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders were building a religion and rejecting the stone, rejecting the rock, the rock that the builders have rejected has become the capstone that holds the temple together, the capstone of your life. Things made by man fail, what God makes endures forever. So when, every, and when everything looks and feels like defeat, wait hopefully on the Lord. Because the promise of history is great victory. This will fill the whole world, the whole universe. And what's the response of the king here? Surely, verse 47, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. How great to be used of God in a dark situation, a painful situation, a situation that looks like defeat. How amazing to be used of God to bring someone outside of the knowledge of God to a place of recognizing his glory in your life. The reality of God. Daniel favored, feeling forgotten, remaining faithful, realizes the reward of future hope. It says that then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of, of all its wise men. From victim of tyrannical, needy leader king to promoted to victor over the whole province of Babylon and senior executive wise man in charge of the department of wise guys. What a promotion. What about the faithful friends who hung around with Daniel? Are they looked after by God? 49, moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Be careful how you treat people on the way down. You may meet them again on their way up. And they may take you with them. So don't grow weary, my beloved, in well-doing or discouraged in the midst of very tough circumstances because our re resume as people of Christ has already been written with finality. And, and it really basically says one thing for all of us. Rick Baker's resume, more than a conqueror through Christ. 
That's my resume. That's your resume. No matter where you are, no matter what the situation is, your final resume has already been written. You're not a victim. You're not defeated. You're not hopeless. You're not in permanent despair. Each one of us, as promised by Christ himself, through his word, Romans 8, more than a conqueror through Christ. So, we can sing the great songs of victory. And we can allow the Spirit of God to lift up our hearts and lift up our heads. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So, we are invited to celebrate that truth at the table of our Lord. To come here this morning and to be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life so that we could be more than conquerors through Christ. So if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, participate in the elements that represent our salvation. The bread, his body, the cup, his blood. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior right this moment, right where you are, in the place you're sitting, you could turn your life over to Jesus Christ right now. You say, oh Lord God, I want to be more than a conqueror. I, I want to I know what it means to have you as Savior and Lord of my life. I, I admit that I'm a sinner. I've turned my back on you, but I, I want to turn towards you. I, I, want you. I want to receive you as my Savior and my Lord. He'll come into your life, change you forever. Oh, he won't take away all the risk and all the pain and all the trouble and all of that. No, no, all that's part of the strengthening process of gaining an awareness of who God really is and how powerful he is. But what he will do is make you more than a conqueror and keep you forever. Our Father, as we uh, pause now for this time, I pray that you would cause our hearts to be filled with hope regardless of the situation we're in right now. Knowing that you alone, O oh God, enable us and your purposes will stand. We are never victims of circumstances. We are always purposed and planned by God who loves us and cares for us and Christ who gave himself for us. Oh God, thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. There was another day in human history that was very bleak, seemed very dark, seemed like defeat. Men of Israel, Peter writes, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus Christ 
died for us so that our days of darkness and trouble and defeat will not last forever but our relationship with him will he is the king of an everlasting kingdom and anyone who belongs to him is also in that everlasting kingdom death is no longer an enemy of ours because Christ has been victorious over sin and death forever for us praise his name oh God we thank you today we praise you we honor you we lift up your name we worship you you are magnificent and while man makes kingdoms that spiral into oblivion from magnificence to elusive strength our God is building a kingdom of both both of elegance extravagance and strength that will never pass away so our God we bear witness to the greatness of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ him alone he alone deserves all the praise and all the glory and we worship him in Jesus name amen amen